All right, let me go ahead and pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can come together and sit under your teaching and your word. And Father, we're just grateful that your word speaks to all of life, speaks to the struggles that we have, and speaks to a, a temptation that is common to us all, which is anxiety. I pray that this will be clear, hope-giving, and transformational. In Christ's name, amen. So years ago, my family went on a vacation, and we had a stop in St. Louis. And if you were going to do one thing in St. Louis, what do you do? You go see the arch. That's right. Somebody said it. And if you go see the arch, you don't just take pictures. You go up into the arch. And we found out that they have elevators that went to the top. I scouted it out. We bought the tickets. And we were a young family at the time. The kids were a little bit smaller, family of six. And to take the elevator to the top, you get into these little carriages that are five feet in diameter. Uh, they're, they're very small. And they have five seats. And the guy put six of us in a five-seat small carriage that was like a space capsule. Well, when my family was in it, they noticed the acoustics, and they started singing songs. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I was not singing because I was trapped in a small space with a singing family. It was using up all the oxygen, and there would be no escape, and I would not be able to get out, and I would die in front of my singing family. <laughs> they noticed that I was quiet and surly and not speaking, and then they proceeded to make fun of me. <laughs> it was a very traumatic experience, as my family realized I had claustrophobia and mocked me for it. Can any of you, any of you have claustrophobia, like being afraid of being stuck in a pipe and not being able to get out? Yeah. I have that too. And that's one of countless phobias that people have. In fact, I came up with a list of some phobias so through some internet research. You have memophobia, which is fear of memories. Amnesia phobia, which is fear of amnesia. Xerophobia, which is fear of dryness. And hydrophobia, which is fear of water. You have hobophobia. Do you know what that is? Fear of bums. Pentherophobia, which is common among young brides, is fear of mother-in-laws. <laughs> Ergophobia, you know who you are, fear of work. Agyrophobia, that impacts chickens everywhere, it's the fear of crossing the road. <laughs> and then my personal favorite, phobophobia, which is fear of getting a phobia. So we have all kinds of things that we can be afraid of, and it just shows you just how pervasive anxiety is and how relevant Jesus' teaching is in Luke 12, 22 through 34. In fact, if you haven't gotten there, turn with me to Luke 12, 22. After telling his disciples to lay up treasure in heaven, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If, then, you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in this passage, Jesus addresses something called paniophobia. Do you know what that is? It's fear of poverty. In a day and age where people live from harvest to harvest, from paycheck to paycheck, when Jesus calls them to give of their resources, there would be an understandable agitation that if I were to do this, how will I feed my family? And so he addresses this head-on by talking about the, the temptation to worry, the temptation to anxiety. And we talked about some of the elements of that, right? It's, it's basically fear of the future. It is you are, you are fearful that God will not provide, that God will not want to provide, that God will leave you out to dry and what you fear will be realized, right? It's, it's, it's future fear. And this is different from, let's say, godly concern, where godly concern draws you closer to the Lord, but, but worry draws you away from God and causes you to believe wrong things about God, that he is not good and that he's not in control. And, and frankly, when you look at the issue of money, it comes with a temptation. Will I have enough? Or if you have enough, will I still have enough? And from the beginning, there's, there's concern. If you are six years old, you are you know, working a job for your parents, perhaps raking leaves, and you're wondering, will I have enough to get that Lego toy? Then it graduates when you are in high school as you are working your first job, working fast food, you know, rocking the drive through Will I have enough to buy the car or perhaps save for college? If you're in college... You might be wondering if you're going to have enough money in the future to pay off all the bills you are spending right now. If you are looking at getting married, will I have enough to buy the engagement ring or pay for the wedding? When you do finally get married, there'll be concern about, will we have enough to pay for a crib and baby clothes and blankets? As the kids are born and get older, will we have enough to pay for braces, perhaps to save up for college and to pay for the teenage boy's food allowance? This is killing me. Will I have enough to pay for their weddings and pay for their college? And then at the end of it, you save up and you wonder, will I have enough to pay for my retirement? And will that still be enough, right? This, this is a temptation that's common to man, right? And, and often, if you are concerned about money, if you're anxious about money, what is your mental solution? If I had more, I wouldn't be anxious, right? The solution is to get more, and if I had more of this or more of this, this will change. If you're 
if you're concerned about your health, your solution is maybe the special diet or seeing the special doctor or, or perhaps going to this off-the-grid you know, special doctor that everyone says you know, works because of anecdotal evidence. If I were to do this, then this will change. And so there's this idea, if I had more money, if I had more control, then I would be okay. And it's almost as if anxiety is external to us. The problem is, when you try to deal with these external things, you don't deal with the heart of anxiety, right? As we talked about last week, anxiety is rooted in what? It's fear. Fear of your worst-case scenario of what might happen to you. I mean, all of you have your nightmare scenario, right? You might have your, the worst case scenario is that somebody you love will die. It might be you will lose your job. You might lose your reputation. Pat Mahomes blows out his knee. I mean, it's different for everyone, right? I saw one person look at me and said, that's mine. How did you know? (laughs) We all have this fear, right? And anxiety tells you that if you think about it long enough and try to do something about it, you can change your fate. That's what it trades in. And in the case of this original audience, their fear of provision would lead them to do what? Not be generous. Withhold from giving. Withhold from obeying. They think that's the only solution for me. So how do you push back on this? Now, some people will say, well, um, maybe do some meditation to take the edge off of anxiety. Spend time with family that will give you some perspective. Or, or perhaps if you take um, some of this medication, it'll help these feelings of anxiety go away. But ultimately, anxiety at its core is not just a physical manifestation. It comes from a heart of belief. It comes from the heart that believes that either God is not good or God is not in control. If God is not good, then yeah, while he could give me what I want, prevent my nightmare situation from happening, there's no guarantee that he's going to do it. Or maybe God is good, and he wants to prevent my nightmare situation from happening, but he doesn't have enough power to do it. Or both. Do you see it? So how do you push back on that? Well, ultimately... If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have a new ability to think differently, to act differently, so that ungodly anxiety will not dominate you. I mean, one of the great passages of personal transformation is Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in its mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Like when someone comes to Christ, there's some incredible transformations that take place. One, your eternal destiny is transformed, right? You have been saved from the eternal wrath of God. You have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven. You will live forever, right? That is a precious promise of the gospel. But there's another form of deliverance. You're not just saved from the consequence of sin. You're saved from the power of sin. Because of the gospel, because God has changed you, 
You don't have to sin. Did you know that? You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to get all worked up. You don't have to do it. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by, the fear, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if you abide by the Spirit's desires, you do what the Spirit wants you to do. And the most clear way of knowing what the Spirit is going to tell us to do is found in the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. If you do that consistently, you will not gratify the desires of the, of the flesh. I mean, we all know what anxiety does. It's a lack of faith that can make us very controlling, unpleasant to be around. Have you ever been around a truly anxious person? Have you been the truly anxious person? Right? It's, it's a prison to some sense because you're ruled by fear, not by faith. And God wants to liberate you from that. He's given you the power to do so. But then you think, well, Pastor David... If God's liberated me from this, and I have the power to do so, and I still feel anxious, does this mean that I'm not a Christian? Not at all. You see, even though sin doesn't have power over you anymore, it can still influence you. And it does so by deception. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul tells his beloved church, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You can have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, but be deceived. Right? Satan is the father of lies. He gets you to believe lies, to be deceived, so that you don't trust in God and you give in to your anxiety. So if you're going to fight anxiety, what needs to change your mindset, you need to become undeceived. Paul explains in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, right? You are surrendered. He can have all. You are you're on the altar, so to speak. You are a living sacrifice. Everything in your life is dedicated to him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now notice, these thoughts are flowing through you, and you have to wait and discern, is that of the world or of the Lord? And how do you determine that? You look at the Word of God. So when we talk about how to fight anxiety, if you're experiencing anxiety, it's important that you know that the reason why you're operating by fear, not faith, is because you've been deceived in one way or another. And how do you fight deception? What's the antidote to deception? It's the truth. It's the truth. When you focus on what is true, when you see the world truly as God sees it, you begin to shift from fearful anxiety to faithful obedience. So as we go through this passage, we kind of dissected the anatomy of anxiety but I want to bring up seven truths to tell yourself when you're tempted to be anxious. And all of these truths push back on one of the two deceptions, either that God is not good or God is not in control, okay? So the seven truths are God values your life. God loves you more than the birds. God has predetermined your lifespan. God loves you more than the lilies. 
God our Father knows what you need. God promises to provide when you make his kingdom your priority. God wants you to live by faith. Now, they're all up here on the outline in very small print. Write them down, hold on to them, but they're all anchored in this passage. Okay, so the first one is that God values your life. Have you ever been around somebody who doesn't value your life? The bad driver? We're not talking about the incompetent driver, but the one who drives really, really fast and eats fast food with both hands as they do it and tells you that they can just as capably drive with their knees as with their hands, who passes cars on Highway 50, who checks their text while driving with you, and you just want to kind of grab the wheel, because they, they're driving with no regard for a human life. And sometimes you can think that God is playing fast and loose with your life, right? You gave him the wheel, and he's putting you in these impossible situations where you won't know where your next meal will come from. And you might wonder, you know, is this some game of cosmic chess that he's playing? And am I a pawn that he's going to sacrifice for some greater purpose here? To that, Jesus reminds you that God values your life. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Right, the very fact that they're asking, what, if we do this, we won't have enough to eat. Now, eating is obvious, right? You need food to survive. In that climate, clothing was, was pretty much, uh, uh, extra clothing was a luxury. But everybody needed something to cover their body so they wouldn't freeze at night or get sick and they can recover. These were basic needs. And Jesus says, your body is more than food, and your body is more than clothing. Basically, your life is worth more than clothes, and your life is worth more than food. Let's say you come across a, a big inheritance from your uncle who owns a horse farm in Kentucky. And not just any horse farm. He's raising racing horses. Some of these thoroughbreds are valued at over a million dollars, Okay. And then the, the manager asked for a couple thousand dollars to pay for food. Are you going to pay that bill? Of course you are. Those horses are worth way more than the food you're feeding them, right? In the same way, Christian, your life is of way more value than food and clothing. God values more than that. He's not like, I'm not sure if I can give him this food or clothing. I don't know, they've already, you know, taken so much from me. But in God's goodness, he's willingly provide for you because he truly values your life. Even the martyrs, right, precious in the sight of God are the death of his beloved, right? Your life is precious to God. In fact, he values your life more than you do. Secondly, God is careful, God is capable of caring for you, right? The anxious often wonder if God is even able to meet my needs. I don't know where my next meal will come from. I don't know what's going to happen to my clothing once it rots. If I give treasure in heaven, how will God meet my needs? And to this, 
he points to the ravens. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than they? You think about all the mental energy that you put into feeding your family. I have to get an education. I have to get a job. I have to work the shift. I have to figure out taxes. You have to do all that stuff just to put food on the table. And Jesus points to the ravens and their close cousin, the crows, and says, look at them. They don't have retirement accounts. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have barns. They have no means of storing. And and somehow they live. These birds with bird brains somehow survive. And you are of more value than these birds. I mean, I think about some birds that have no value in life, like the starlings. Right, we don't have crows and ravens, but we do have starlings. I was introduced to them when I first moved here. We had a whole flock of them live in a tree that hung over our driveway. And being that our garage was full of boxes, we had to park outside under the tree. The next morning, it looked like our minivan contracted leprosy. <laughs> it was quite a sight. But God cares for every single one of those starlings. You look around, right? They're, they're not trying to figure it out. God somehow meets their needs. And he feeds those bird brain birds. How much more will he feed you? Thirdly, God has predetermined your lifespan. God has predetermined your lifespan. This past week, I, I read a real fascinating profile of a tech millionaire named Brian Johnson. He's a centimillionaire, so he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he spends $2 million a year on this project blueprint where he is attempting to reverse the aging process. This involves eating 70 pounds of vegetables a month, having his last meal at 11 o'clock in the morning. He'll actually drive. When he drives, he tells himself, this is the most dangerous activity I'm involved in. And he, he will drive in downtown San Francisco at a, at a grand speed of 16 miles per hour. Because I guess you won't die if you impact another car at that speed. His whole life is oriented around trying to extend his life. He even has a t-shirt that says, don't die. He believes that eating a cookie is an act of violence because it might shorten your lifespan. So his whole project is to live forever, and he believes he can do it. What do you think? Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, nice try. Nice try. I mean, Jesus says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? All right, this is a reference to Psalm 39.5. Behold, you have, been made, you have made my days few, a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, a predetermined lifespan. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, right? Your days have been formed. You are 
indestructible until God calls you home. You all know Brent Laird, cherished friend of mine, has spoken at the Ironman Summit, spoken at our church. We're going to see him again in January, in fact. His uh, little brother died while training for special forces. And I remember talking to him about it, and what happened was he was swimming the length of a pool, and he ended up drowning in the shallow end. And I asked Brett, so were there other people in the pool? He's like, yeah, there was a water aerobics class. He was in the shallow end. Yeah. Was there a lifeguard on duty? Yeah. It's like, so all those things happen? How did this happen? He said, you know, all those things just remind me that God was going to take him home that day no matter the obstacles. Right? That's, you can't stop God from calling you home. Your days are numbered. You won't live any longer or any shorter than the days allotted to you. The person you love won't live any longer or any shorter than the days numbered for them. Worrying will not change that reality. Fourth, God loves you more than the lilies. Sometimes there's this idea that God will reluctantly take care of you through austerity. He'll give you food, but the food will be gruel and water, only what you need to survive. And he might give you clothing, but it's going to be burlap sackcloth. To this, God says in verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Right? Jesus points to the lilies of the field. Now, we have certain wildflowers here. The, the best time of year for seeing wildflowers are during the spring when you notice it on all the overpasses. You know what I'm talking about? Out of the grass, out of the weeds, come these beautiful flowers that if you were to look at them under a microscope, you see that they're incredibly complex organisms, and they're beautiful. God chose to make beautiful flowers and beautiful things, such that even Solomon, the richest man on earth, would marvel at having clothes like that. And they don't work for it. They don't spin to get the thread. God provides it all. And Jesus says in verse 28, But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will they clothe you, O you of little faith? So they didn't have a lot of trees in Israel, so if you wanted to get fuel, you got grass. And so this beautiful flower would fade. They would harvest the grass, throw it in the oven. And yet, even something as disposable as that is beautifully clothed. So if God is willing to do that for the grass... How much more is he willing to do so for you, O you of little faith? And notice that statement, right? What's one of the roots of fear? A lack of faith. God loves you more than the lilies. And fifth, God, your Father, knows what you need. You know, a lot of times we, we wonder, if we're going through a trial, does God even understand what I'm going through? There's this idea that God is like a distant father who, who comes home from a tough day at work and just scrolls through his phone endlessly, then checks out as he watches the game. 
He's unaware of what's going on. He's surprised when his kids even talk to him. And so you can think that God is so preoccupied with the affairs of the universe that he doesn't have time for little you and your little problems. And this is what he says in verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father, notice your father, not a distant God, he's your father, knows that you need them. He is aware of your needs even before you are. Isn't that amazing? He knows what you need more than you do. He's not an aloof, out-of-touch father. He knows what you need. Six, God promises to provide when you make his kingdom your priority. He knows what you need, and he'll give you what you need when you really need it. See, a lot of times when you are not sure if God is going to meet your needs, the temptation is to do what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. You're 30 years old. You've been single. You tried Christian Mingle and the other Christian dating sites. No one from Flint Hills Bible Church seems to be asking you out to go to the Anchored Conference. Still the the same thing. It's like, what are you going to do? But then a nice co-worker asks you out, and he's a, he's a very sweet guy, comes from a good family, doesn't go to church, but he's taken an interest in you, and he's a hard worker, and he's handsome, and he makes you feel like a million dollars, and, and you tell yourself, well, he's a pre-Christian. I'm sure he's going to get there. You fall in love with him. He asks you to marry him, and you say Yes even though he showed no interest in the things of the Lord. But you do it anyway because this is the only way. Isn't that right? That story can be filled out with different details in different occasions, but we often tell ourselves, or you might tell yourself, disobedience is the only way to get what I really need. Now again, you're defining your own need. And if you really need it, God knows that you need it, and God is the one who will provide it. So what is your greatest need and what is your greatest calling? It is to seek first the kingdom of heaven. That is to pursue King Jesus, to live for eternity, to live like his reign matters to you, what he says you do, right? His priorities are your priorities. His commands are your obligations. You seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you. I look at the area of giving. I've known many people who sacrificially give, even though they don't quite know where the money's going to come from, and it's like they always have enough. Do you know those cases? They give generously, and the money just still seems to be there. It's kind of like the widow that Elijah blessed, right? The, the oil just keeps on pouring out more. I've known other people who don't give, and they never have enough. They always seem to be overlooked for promotions or something breaks down. The money doesn't really go that far. That's no accident. Those who seek first the kingdom of heaven, who look at God, operate by faith, he generously provides for them so that they can keep on doing what he has called them to do. Jesus tells them, fear not, little flock. Again, notice the term fear. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
right? He, if he's going to give you this kingdom, if he's already going to be that generous with you, wouldn't he be generous enough to give you the means to obey him as well? Remember, this whole, whole um, dialogue was occasioned by a man asking for his inheritance. When I get that inheritance, then I will never have to work again. When I get that inheritance, I'll have the peace and security I've always wanted. I can't wait to get the inheritance. Well, the greatest inheritance is not found in this earth, right? It, it could be a billion dollars. But that is nothing compared to the kingdom that Jesus is going to give his children. That is when all your needs will be met. But in the meantime, Jesus is going to give you enough so that you can get there faithful to him. If you seek him, he will provide your needs. He's planning on giving you a kingdom. How much more will he give you if he's going to give you that? And then seventhly, God wants you to live by faith. See, it's not enough to not feel anxious or to feel calm or have these feelings of agitation taken away. Ultimately, the reason why anxiety is so troubling to God is because it prevents us from taking steps of faith, from obeying. Now, how about this for a step of faith? Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Faith is not cerebral. It is a call to action. Jesus is forming this community of disciples. And remember how there are some people who don't know where their next money, their, their next meal is going to come from. They might give of their money. How do you think God meets their needs? We get an idea in Acts 2, 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Right, those who were seeking first the kingdom were having their needs met. Acts 4, 34-37. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. See, one of the ways that God provides for the needs is through the generosity of other people. And there'll be seasons in your life where you will be on the receiving end of that kind of generosity. And there'll be seasons of life when you will be at the giving end of that kind of generosity. But the point is, by giving to the Lord, you are meeting the needs, you are strengthening the faith of all who are in the community. Our family, right, we, we live off of your giving. We have been strengthened by your giving. And we, in turn, want to give as well so that all can benefit from generosity. That's what the Lord wants for us. But sometimes when you give, it does take a step of faith. In fact, giving strengthens your faith. We had one child who struggled with talking to strangers. This child also loved ice cream. So we had an idea. Went to Brahms gave this child $5 and told this child, do you want some ice cream? Yes. Here's $5. Go get it. The child was in tears, so he had to threaten him. Oops. But he eventually 
got over it, and it became easier with each successive trip to Brahms. Does that make sense? See, one way to strengthen your faith is to do acts of faith. And sometimes we think, okay, I'll be martyred. That'll be my act of faith. Okay, great. When that time happens, we'll send you to Israel. You can go into the Gaza Strip, share the gospel, see what happens, right? But in the meantime, how do you know if somebody would, be, would do that act of faith if they do the little ones, the little sacrifices, the little acts of giving, whether it's your time, resources, or whatever? All of that is an exercise in strengthening your faith. You see, ultimately, God doesn't need your money. Right? He owns a cattle on a thousand years. He has all kinds of ways of raising capital for his campaigns. But what he wants is your heart, and if he has your heart, he has your money. And, and this is a way of training people. Do not put faith in this world, but put faith in the world to come. So one way to get over anxiety is to do tangible acts of faith. You do that enough, each successive one gets stronger. Does that make sense? So it's more than just something cerebral. It's an activity. It's to do it even when you're scared. To obey even when you're fearful. So why do some people struggle to do this? What keeps people from really dealing with their anxiety? And there's a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll give you... Let's see, I've got four. One is you fail to see anxiety as a sin. And we talked about this last week, right? That there is a difference between godly concern and sinful anxiety, right? There is a place for concern. We use the example of the kids at the pool, right? Where the mom's always counting the heads, making sure they're above water. But you have to leave that kind of concern at the pool, if you have that kind of concern at all times, it can take over your life. Just like the soldier in Vietnam would have great concern when he's going through the jungle, being aware of all of his enemies. The problem is when he doesn't leave that concern in Vietnam, but takes it home. Anger is the same way, right? For short spurts, it's good, but when it escapes containment, it can consume you. So you have to own it. If you're struggling with anxiety, instead of trying to excuse it and just call it godly concern, just admit it. Because God can forgive sin, but not excuses. Right? You just own it. You say, this is what it is. Secondly, you need to choose to fill your mind with truth instead of deception. We are in an election season. And there will be a temptation to listen to different podcasts and talk radio where you'll become fearful of many things, right? They're going to steal this election. This is what the liberals are going to do, right? And you fill your mind with those realities over and over and over again. And what do you think is going to happen to you? If you're always focusing on those things that make you anxious or or angry. I mean, that's how they sell stuff on TV, don't they? Get on star because you might be stuck in a ditch with a crying baby and there'll be no one to help you. Buy an Apple Watch because you might be swept out to sea sometime and that might be the only way you'll actually be rescued. 
right? Those things kind of work. Take these supplements, otherwise you might have kidney failure. Oh, I guess I better take those. Right? Fear sells. So you have to be aware that if this is a struggle for you, cut off those, those mediums by which fear can kind of penetrate you over and over again. Thirdly, fill your mind with truth. Have some verses at the ready to combat deception. Seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Right? Be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication. Present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? Have verses ready to go so that when you, when you feel those pangs of anxiety, you can put them off with the truth and put on the truth. And then fourthly, sometimes you just struggle to think clearly. A lot of times we know the right answer and we know the truth, but because of circumstances in our life, we just can't think clearly. For instance, this is part of the trap of anxiety is it can keep you awake at night. And when you don't sleep at all at night, what happens to your thought life the next day? Everything gets dark. Sometimes the solution to anxiety is a nap. It's a nap. It's getting a good night's rest, resetting that. And this is why people will ask me what I think about medication. And I think if it's used responsibly under the supervision of the doctor, and the goal is not to cure anxiety, but to help level you out so that you can understand truth and think clearly about it, then it could be of service, but you're not trusting in the pill. You are understanding that it's helping you trust in the truth. Does that make sense? Under the supervision of a doctor and all those other things. But there are times when you're not thinking clearly, but the goal is to focus on the truth. What is leading you down this path and what is ultimately deceiving you? See, ultimately, the problem with anxiety is it causes you to not trust in God. It darkens your view of him. It makes people and this world seem bigger than they actually are. It, it tempts you to doom and gloom scenarios. It believes, causes you to believe that the worst case scenario is just around the corner. Instead of believing that God knows these things, he has the ability to stop it, it's under his control so you can relax and trust in him. And the great proof of that, of his love and care for you, is found in what? Right? What is your greatest problem? What is your nightmare scenario? I'll tell you what it is. It's hell. It's eternal justice and wrath for the sins we've committed against him. But God in his love for us sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins to absorb that wrath of God so that when you believe in him, your sins are atoned for. You can follow the risen Lord and he can lead you to a new and better way of living and lead you to a kingdom to come where God is completely in control and will have nothing to be anxious about at that time. But in the meantime, we follow him in faith, trusting who he is, trusting what he can do. And when you do that, that's the answer to anxiety, is focusing on the character and nature of God. Jesus wants you to be free from anxiety because he wants you to be free to follow him and not be distracted by the concerns and worries of the world. He is the answer to our anxiety. Let's pray. Father, we come before you 
grateful for the wisdom and the teaching of Jesus. And I pray for any anxious brothers and sisters right now. I pray that this uh, message has served them well, that they'll know that they have nothing to be scared of because you are in control and you love them. Help them to, metify, help, help them to uh, meditate and memorize these, these sweet lessons from Jesus so that when the time comes, they can fight their fear with faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.